John's got to cut the video so we don't have to look at that shirt. You guys, you guys want one? I'm I'm gonna get the. I think they're not made anymore. I'm not giving you. I'm not getting you the metal hook. Not getting you the metal hook arms. Just a shirt. Welcome back to the Law Talk podcast from the Hoover Institution. Coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law, an institution that is not only not woke, but in fact barely awake. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media. And if we're being honest, I'm also Banksy, and I am joined, as always, by the Zach and Screech of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. Gentlemen, good to be back with you. Um, I had a topic that I was planning on introducing up top. I feel like I need to table that for a moment so that we can discuss what the hell John is wearing. I have never wanted this to be a video program. John, what you describe for us, and then I'm going to have Richard audit your description, what it is that you have chosen to wear to this taping. Troy, I'm filing a complaint against you for lookism <laughs> under the University of California secret anonymous reporting rules for hate speech. <laughs> oh, look, all I'm wearing is uh, a piece of clothing has stood me in good stead since my college days. I don't understand that, that should why. Be your, that should be your first warning sign. The big, the big hubbub uh, amongst you. It's a uh, red and... Navy Boop. blue striped turtleneck with the stripes going horizontal, and they're very nice. I still remember I bought it at the LLB clearance section in Maine when I just decided to drive up north for I can't even remember why. And I don't understand. Look, I'm not trying to be in fashion, but I don't understand when this ever went out of fashion. This is timeless. You don't understand when this went out of fashion. No, 1767 yes. off the coast of Florida. No, it didn't go out of fashion then. What John is trying to do is to project the psychedelic image of somebody who is superior to <laughs> and above everybody else in the world by bearing this shirt which sort of slithers around him every time he starts to move. And the contrast between him and the beat-up old shirt that I'm wearing with a frayed collar and the not-so-nice uh, little jacket I'm wearing on top of it shows that John has basically become a social client. He is trying to win all the debates between the two of us by appearance, whereas I am trying to win them by a form of sober reality. The fact that you're spending the first five minutes talking to the podcast shows that I was successful. No, you'd manage to distract <laughs> us. You're from just every talking about me. <laughs> me, me, me. No, John, it, it's it's a kind of a style about you. You know, sometimes you don't sink to these sorts of levels of trying to one-up everybody by a psychedelic shirt. But yeah, I'm going to pass it by now. I'm going to shut my eyes, and every time I think I'm going to look at you, I will stare at the ceiling instead. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're dedicating the first five minutes to it is because you look like an understudy in the Pirates of Penzance. <laughs> I am going to send you both these shirts if I can find any place that still makes them. I, I am not kidding. I will move so as not to receive it. <laughs> uh, I do. I do have a topic for you guys up front because it just occurred to me that we've. I don't think we've ever talked about it. This is our like immediate um, post President's Day show. 
Although, as I've mentioned on the program before, President's Day is a lie. The actual holiday is just Washington's birthday. Nobody is compelling you to celebrate the life and times of Millard Fillmore. But <laughs> I start you off with this question, just in brief. Most overrated and most underrated president. John, take oh. it first. So first, can I say uh, on President's Day, the yeah. first day afterwards in class, I actually bring a book to give away to any student who can list the presidents in order from memory while standing in front of the class. And I have to confess, no one could do it this year. I They tried, and I was so hoping that they were going to skip Grover Cleveland because no one can remember him. Not oh, no, he's, got, he's, on there he's on there twice. <laughs> but he's on there twice, and Benjamin Harrison is between him. So can I what? say that the student, the he came close, he forgot. This is the one. This is where, did, where did he flounder? He yeah, forgot this is what I Chester to Arthur. Wow. It's hard to blame the kid for not remembering Chester Under, Arthur. He got all the other ones right, but he forgot Chester Arthur. Was that right after Garfield? <laughs> yes, right after Garfield. Yes. Between Garfield hey, hey. and the first Cleveland. Yeah. yeah. yeah so you, hey. you normally have a winner, John? Pretty much every uh, year? Yeah, no, in past years, I've had winners. And so uh, when there have been two people who've been able to do it, then as a tiebreaker, I ask them to do it backwards. And they usually can. Oh, That's not you too are hard. Cool. But then the winner, the one that no one gets, this is how sad it is, um, but maybe also true, is I actually I wonder if Richard could do this. I asked them to name the chief justices in order. Um, no, I can name not... mo- I can name most of them. <laughs> you can name most, but you're always going to forget one or two. Well, I'm always going to forget John Jay to start it off with, right? <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to remember: was there anybody between him and uh, see, John see? Marshall? Yes, yeah. uh, gone off the rails. Ells- Ellsworth. Uh, there was, I think, Oliver yeah, Ellsworth, wasn't the Ellsworth Court, I believe. And then there was what's um, McCall. There was a guy named Marshall. He died in <laughs> office. And then it was Roger Tawney. At which point, after which, it was Solomon Chase. Is that correct? Yes, Chase was the Secretary of Treasury. It's 1860, whatever it is, 4th, 1873. This is ridiculous programming. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think, and then, then I, I know who the next one is, but his name currently slips my mind. Um, uh, so I'm not going to. Wait, wait, that means you don't get the free book. Yeah, I don't but, think that. I don't second, want the free book. I don't want the free place, book. you get the striped. This year, oh, I get that. no, okay. That's last place. Okay, wait a minute. I have a cu- I have a couple of questions here. I have to dig us out of this hole. So yeah. the actual the actual sort of lawyerly question here, John, is what happens if they give you all of the names correctly, but only say Cleveland once because they have named all the presidents. Oh yeah, no, but I said in order, so I don't I don't consider so you have to get Cleveland once to okay. be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then, then then we go back to my original prompt, which is. Most overrated and most underrated. Oh, I can answer that. Question. Oh, yeah. So I would. I actually think one of the most overrated presidents is John F. Kennedy. I find his. I completely agree with this. Yeah, I. I just find him. I find his reputation, uh, particularly in the public mind, uh, so out of whack with what we know about him now that he was reckless. Uh, that he was not. I don't think he was a very good president. But he. You know what he did that was brilliant. He brought all these intellectuals around him who wrote books about him and who went out into the world of media and movies and TV and created this myth, you know, the Camelot myth. It is a myth. And I think it was a myth with him as well. Well, this will kind of Kennedy will probably find his level when the baby boomers die off. Right. Because part of it is the, the romance of the attachment at the time. Can I also. Um, I'm the only one in this room who actually remembers that. Right. I, I think you were the only one who was alive. 
<laughs> um, I was sitting about to go to my little class with <laughs> Professor Renaud in sociology, and then a kid named Ken Mutterpearl came to me and said, there's a rumor that the president's been shot. It's interesting how slow it took for the information to spread on that day. And it was an absolutely, once it came through, it was totally cataclysmic in terms of it. Nobody, regardless of their political sentiments or belief, did this. The thing that made Kennedy a great president, of course, was his youth and apparent vigor. Uh, had nothing to do with his policies. There's a great piece by Henry Fairley in the New York Times, I think in the beginning of 1963, in which he talks about 20-odd episodes that Kennedy managed to create in international affairs that did not enjoy the attention that he gave him. And this was the guy of Vienna, this was the guy of the Bay of Pigs and so forth, who did regime himself, it seemed to me, in October of 1962, uh, when he had Adlai Stevenson face down the Russians at the UN. Uh, but he, he lived life very dangerously, I think that's right. But he's not the worst president by far. I didn't say worst, most overrated and most yeah, overrated. underrated. Oh, yeah. overrated, I would say it's Woodrow Wilson. Um, who oh, that's was, a good pick too. Uh, he scores higher on the list than Kennedy, who doesn't make it into the top 10. Uh, I think Wilson is uh, sort of just behind or just ahead of, depending on which poll you start to look at, Eisenhower and Truman, who remarkably are related quite closely to one another, and I think quite fairly. But Wilson was a genuinely catastrophic president. Um, on domestic affairs, every piece of information that he wanted to introduce was probably a bad thing. And in international affairs, the way in which he handled the situation towards the end of his life with Versailles and everything after World War I and the treaty and so forth, he was the guy who was president, remember, when had all the Palmer raids and so forth. Um, he just did one terrible thing after another. Um, people say, you know, he also resegregated the civil service at the time, that was regarded as a minor event that was obviously in the long term much more important. But it certainly wasn't at the top of the things that he did that were wrong. And I still remember the famous passages that uh, Winston Churchill wrote about World War I in his you know, lofty history of the subject, where he said, if only Wilson had agreed to end after the Lusitania had been struck, the number of lives that could have been saved would have been in the tens or hundreds of thousands and so forth. So I think he's at the top of my list. So I got on the underrated. This is a hard yeah. one. Um, I, uh, you know, because you, normally you'd want to go with, uh, so you, you, you usually want to go with the one-termer because if you've got a two-term president, they're generally not totally underrated. So here's my, um, I was thinking the, the between uh, Martin Van Buren, who I think was much more influential and consequential than people give him credit for. He's the one who basically created our modern party systems. Or here's my, I don't I know. I know, I know what you're going to say. Herbert Hoover. Oh, not, not <laughs> no, at no, all no, what no, I thought no, you no, were no. going to say. Because I actually think Hoover was not as uh, bad uh, in response to the Great Depression as people think. And then look what FDR did. I think what FDR did in response to the Depression was much worse in the long term for the country. I was really surprised. I thought you of all <laughs> no, people... No, no, the man who is most Polk. underrated. No, but Polk is not underrated because he's oh, like, if you look at the top 10 list of presidents, he's actually he's, he's, a top 10 president. So I was thinking about Polk, but actually... I think no, I think the, 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 the president who is rated as generally um, starting out to be the worst, the worst president ever... Is um, Johnson? No, no, no. It's Warren uh, Harding. Or, uh, Johnson and Buchanan. 
No, Warren, Har- Warren Harding is generally thought to be the worst president ever. And what is ironic about him is he actually had the strongest cabinet, I think, that you could ever imagine. Um, he becomes president. He wins pretty much by a landslide. You might even recall that Herbert Hoover was odds-on favorite to become a nominee of either or both parties, given the heroic service right. that he did in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, when people start talking what? about Harding, all they can bring themselves to bear is Alfred Fall and the various scandals that took place on the teapot dome uh, but you know this is a man who appointed charles evans hughes as the secretary of state andrew carnegie as the secretary of the treasury and a very vital and dynamic herbert hoover as the secretary of commerce um he managed to negotiate various kinds of international treaties to limit the amount of warships and all the rest of that stuff it was a pretty consequential presidency there was a very serious recession when he started in office and he actually used very high interest rates and managed to choke that thing off um he was not particularly dynamic. He did die of a stroke uh, very early on, and then he was replaced by another president, Hoover, who is generally, I think, underrated, but not grievously so, or Coolidge, rather. Coolidge, uh, so, yeah. I, um, so I would say it would probably be Harding uh, that is the, if you ask me, let me give you the sort of the one, the one little instance which explains why it was Harding was a better president than Wilson. Uh, remember, the Palmer Rays, one of the people whom Wilson had had arrested through his attorney general was Eugene D. Debb. Do you recall that? Yeah. Um, he was thrown in jail uh, for the speeches he made at the presidential convention of his own party. Uh, who was the person responsible for his release? It was Harry Doherty, who was the attorney general of um, Warren G. Harding. Um, and so, I mean, you know, I, I think what's really going on is if you were to afford to take the political coloration of people who are doing these presidential histories, probably 80 to 90 percent of them are Democrats. It seems to me, people like Arthur Schlesinger, who I always thought was intellectually hopeless on all of these issues. <laughs> uh, but and, and so what they do is they, t- they tend to push the Democrats up a little bit beyond where they ought to be yes. and knock the Republicans down a little bit beyond where they'd be. There are certain Republican presidents who are kind of ecumenical. I think it's fair to say that Eisenhower is that way. And I think he, he's right. probably a top 10 president. And my guess is he will remain a top 10 president. And the same thing will be true of Truman. You mentioned Roosevelt. Roosevelt is two presidents. Uh, he was a disaster as a domestic president by just about everything that he touched. Uh, but in international affairs after, say, 1940, when the European threat be- and the Asian threat became there, he was an extremely effective president. He, he might have father. saved the world. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, give him credit for that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so the question I'm asking myself, if a guy could form a grand alliance to stop Hitler and Japan, I rate that higher than his inability to figure out how to organize agricultural markets which is what he screwed up on domestically. So I rate him quite highly as a president. I do too. Uh, because I, I think on that stuff, he was there. The great achievement of Roosevelt, and this is something which I don't think is fully appreciated, is he had an unerring eye to appointing the right people to the right positions in time. And it was, you know, not just people like Eisenhower and George Marshall. How many people know of Vannevar Bush? Right. The the uh, science guy, the scientist. But, right. but he was the guy who organized the war ethic. Yeah. 
and getting all these scientific task force together. So he put together the stuff in Los Alamos with Oppenheim, and then he did the same thing with the radiation laboratory uh, that took place in Boston and so forth with radar. Um, the most important battle in World War II, I think it's clear from the American side, and maybe even including Stalingrad, was the Battle of the North Atlantic that started in December of 1941 and only reached its successful resolution in March or April of 1943 when the radiation lab under this guy Alfred Loomis was able to put together enough information so that there was no place in the North Atlantic that the U-boats um, could service in order to refuel. Richard, can I interrupt? I have to correct sure. something I said, which will leave you, I think, speechless and amazed. Which uh, is just, just the, the second, so when I was going through the chief justice list, there was mm -hmm. actually someone else in between Jay Ellsworth and Marshall that we never would have thought of because he was a recess appointment. John Rutledge was the second oh, chief justice. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that really? I don't know if they actually, if he actually presided over any cases. Wow. So, but uh, I think officially, John, John, can I chief John, you nice have a, piece of trivia? Yes, nice John, you have such a great sense of perspective. You managed to talk about Rutledge saving nothing on the Supreme Court. When we're talking about how Roosevelt and, and, and Churchill and so forth managed to save Western civilization um, and so forth. But the, the point I wanted to finish about Roosevelt, he just knew whom to appoint to the key position in these things. And it was at every level. So all the, you know, the ties, Henry J. Kaiser and the daily ships and stuff like that. Who knows where he got these people from? But it, what he did is he was able to run an efficient machine by appointing able people to run all of his major agencies. And then his able people in turn would point able people behind them. And so that the United States was just an incredible the word was arsenal of democracy. There's a nice book about the Air Force and the Navy by Paul Kennedy. And what you start seeing happening in American production starting in 1942, by the time it's 1944, the problem that we have is we're producing too many goods of high quality that we can't even put them all into use at the same time. We made close to 100,000 planes in one year along with everything else. I mean, it was an amazing achievement of logistics and command all the way up and down the line. And I think Roosevelt has to be given credit for it. It's a funny thing. Um, so if you read the histories of the New Deal, uh, FDR's problem uh, was that he actually could not abide by formal systems. There was actually no chief of staff in his White House because he liked to have all these aides informally coming in, coming out, some in charge of this, some in charge of that. He's the kind of guy who would put two people in charge of the same thing and not tell either of them so that he could see what would happen. Um, and I think actually that um, informality and flexibility worked to his advantage when it came to organizing uh, the war effort because he basically just right, didn't he just basically have the head of GM and the head of you know the shipyards out here and he just asked them to organize the war effort. Yeah, he but he picked the right guys. Yeah, yeah. I and, mean, but you it know, was a very. This is what I would thought you wouldn't have liked, Richard. Was a lot of these people were kind of. Um, no, sort of the old white shoe, blue blood people he went to college with or he knew from New York City. Um, they weren't, wasn't a sort of uh, meritocratic in any way, I don't think. I think it was more, these are like the important people he knew. 
Well, I do think, in fact, he was an aristocrat, and that certainly had a heavy influence in, in what went on. He did make one at least very serious major mistake in World War II, which was his very reluctance to get involved in the Jewish rescue efforts and the stopping of the concentration camps. Um, in the end, he did agree to the appointment of the War Refugee Board, which did an enormous amount of good with an extremely small budget. Uh, but if you go oh, read... He also should have nuked Moscow, but that's another thing. Uh, that's another story. <laughs> Okay. Well, okay. I mean, one of the things, by the way, I mean, it's interesting enough. One of the we're, debates. We're, we're, we're coming back to that now. No, I mean, one of the interesting debates at the time was could you bomb Auschwitz? Um, oh, or yeah. should you? And it was actually a very, very close debate because, amongst other things, it wasn't at all clear until the early 1944 whether you even had the range to be able to hit that target and return safely to base. Um, but I think that's the area in which, if anything, he did that. And there was always a kind of a, how do we say, a polite form of anti-Semitism, uh, not so much in Roosevelt, although he probably had a little bit, but in people like Sumner Wells and so forth, who worked around him, who did everything. I mean, there was a book written, I'm trying to remember the man who wrote it, called The Abandonment of the Jews. And this fellow came, and what he did, he was not Jewish himself. Uh, he came and gave a lecture in 1988 about all this. And what he did is he picked up the form that you had to fill out in order to become a refugee from Romania to the United States. And what he did is he took the top of the form and held it above his head. All the pages came clattering down. And it was quite clear that the whole form in question was probably 10 to 12 feet long, uh, filled up with irrelevant stuff. The Jewish committees, in fact, were willing to pay to bring all the refugees out of the country. And what they did is they managed somehow or other to slow all of this kind of effort down. Uh, he was in part responsible for that. The British Foreign Office was in part responsible for that because they were still worried about the complications that would take place in Palestine after the war. So I think that's the uh, point on which I'm most troubled about the way in which I think um, Roosevelt behaved. But on the military stuff, I think he did an amazingly good job uh, under very difficult circumstances. And people like Eisenhower, you know, it's very easy to underrate a guy because he doesn't talk in big sentences and so forth. And my favorite line from Eisenhower, I think, describes him. He defined an actual intellectual that he's talking about you and me, John. You know what he defined us as? People take more words to say less than we know. Speak for yourself. Well, on, 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 on that point, gentlemen, I will just remind you that the question asked, asked you to respond to briefly. We are 22 minutes into our current event show, and the most recent date we've gotten to is November 22nd, 1963. So I am yeah. going to nudge you into the, the current events portion of the proceedings. Um, and I will start by saying that most episodes of the show, I can tell pretty well in advance like what topic we're going to start with. This one... I did not see coming. So there is this, this special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, Atlanta, that has, uh, for the people who really want to see Donald Trump take a spill, been, I think, the investigation they placed the most hope in. This is looking into whether there was criminal interference in the Georgia election in 2020. <sighs> the Trump campaign was trying to find the margin of victory somewhere. This grand jury sat for eight months. They just completed their work in January. Most of the jury report is still sealed and is expected to stay that way until the DA's office makes decisions of bringing charges. And yet the foreman of this grand jury, who is a young and let's say exuberant woman by the name of Emily Coors, has essentially been doing a media tour this week. She's been on CNN. She talked to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She talked to NBC. She talked to the Washington Post, the Associated Press. And she is clearly delighted 
to tease the public with the fact that she's got information that they don't. She's been hinting about evidence, talking about them hearing Trump's phone calls. She's hinting that they recommended perjury charges. She's sort of suggesting by innuendo that they recommended indictment for Trump, and it sounds like a lot of other people, always sort of dancing right up against the line of giving away everything that happened here. And John, there's a lot of speculation in the media right now about what the implications of this are, particularly the idea that it makes things much harder for the Fulton County DA to have the foreman of the jury out there blabbing to the press. You've already had people on the Trump team say this is emblematic of a flawed process. But does this have any real-world implications? Does this complicate any case that might be brought against Trump or any of his associates? It's interesting. I think it complicates it, but I don't think it really undermines any prosecutions. Uh, first off, the DA here, uh, Fannie Willis, uh, for Fulton County, Georgia, Georgia, has to go to another grand jury to actually get indictments of anyone. So this uh, this this grand jury, I mean, each state can organize grand juries the way they like. This grand jury, to me, is almost more like what we call special grand jury in some states that you can convene. Uh, just to investigate uh, things that have gone wrong, but it's not a criminal indictment jury. You know, a, jury, a grand jury that sits there to issue criminal indictments. That's why uh, you know the jury investigated the overall election. Also investigated whether there had been fraud in the 2020 election, uh, putting aside uh, any particular individuals. And I think one important finding, apparently, that this grand jury made was that they found no cases of fraud in the Georgia vote in 2020. So that, that's the first thing. This is not a criminal grand jury. The DA still has to go to that. So some of these arguments that are being made would go, would come up at that point, but not this broader one. So for example, you could have a special grand jury just for, uh, are the roads bad in our county? Who's at fault for making the road, not keeping up, uh, filling all the potholes? So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing is, um, to the extent Trump or anyone else who's indicted by uh, the DA in the end could raise some issue, I, I mean, they'd have to show, try to use her statements to show uh, some kind of ultimate violation of their due process rights by the unfairness of the grand jury itself. And Despite the fact that uh, you know this uh, DA seems to be like a high school kid on you know their you know, their spring break, I mean she literally I think she said that she was like well, like eating an ice cream cone while she was ministering an oath. To I believe one it of was witnesses. a I believe it was a teenage mutant ninja turtles themed popsicle. I oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not joking. That's what's <laughs> in like, the report. Really, I was like those. I didn't even know the new Ninja Turtles were still around. I mean, is that like was the other name them? Was John. She using like a did she have like a Flintstones, you know, a Flintstones cereal box in her other hand? Anyway, so that I mean, she just seems uh, frivolous. Uh, I mean, I don't think anything she has said really goes to proving a claim that the grand jury process itself was fundamentally unfair in a constitutional sense. Um, grand juries are not. Uh, really supposed to be all that fair because what happens is that the DA brings in witnesses. They don't get to bring their lawyers. They don't, the, the, the defense or the witnesses, there are no defense, there's no defense yet. So the witnesses uh, don't provide 
say, the uh, story that Trump might want to use in his own defense. So it is already a one-sided affair. And so I think it's really difficult. I'm not really, I've not really read any cases, in fact, where uh, the Supreme Court, for example, threw out an indictment because the grand jury was just so utterly one-sided and unfair that it amounted to a due process violation. I don't see that here with the things she's been saying. Um, look, this is an area which I think is pretty far from my own area of expertise. Uh, the clear argument that somebody would try to make is that she's creating a climate of opinion which would make it impossible for him to have a fair trial. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is he's making these statements now. Uh, they're not they're, they're, they're teases rather than specific statements. Uh, there's a long time that's going to pass between this and any serious grand jury which has a criminal indictment, which will be sworn to secrecy, which might well negate everything that's going to start to take place here. Uh, it seems to me that the serious problems that are going to be associated with the uh, Trump grand jury is whether or not the man is just incredibly impolitic on the one hand, or whether it turns out that he was trying to suborn an election outcome on the other. Uh, so take the most famous statement, you've got to find me 10,000 or 11,000 votes. Uh, this could be meant to say manufacture them, whether they're there or not, or it could say, for God's sake, go back to all of the votes and see whether or not there's some ballots which were left on counted because of some manifest irregularity that took place in Atlanta. Uh, it's very difficult from the outside to figure out which of these two interpretations is better. Uh, and so one of the things that you come up with all the time when you're dealing with Donald Trump, if in fact you believe that he is a beacon of light and intelligence, every time he makes a statement like this, what he's doing is he's exposing the hypocrisy and the double-handedness of everybody who's an established officer. Uh, if on the other hand, you're anti-Trump, what he's doing is he's subverting the very roots of American democracy. And what he does is he makes it impossible for somebody to take a measured and intermediate position. And so what you can look forward to, I think, is if there is going to be an indictment, there's going to be essentially a second narrative taking out there in which what Trump will do is try to organize his forces to indicate that all the terrible things that happened in Atlanta are, in fact, the sort of thing that require um, some genuine public release and that this is just a giant conspiracy on the part of established officials who don't want to admit that things went very bad on their watch. Um, I have no idea of how anything like that is going to come out. Um, my own view about this is I am not in favor of indicting former presidents, particularly those who are contemplating running for office again. Um, I would rather these things be sorted out politically rather than through the destruction of what will be a very difficult and awkward trial that's going to take place. Uh, I feel that generally. I mean, I mean, I've been strongly against Trump as a president because of his personality from the day he took office. Uh, but I think these are political objections. I don't think they're the basis of criminal charges. Let me ask you guys this. I mean, Trump has a bunch of legal headaches right now. You've got the Manhattan DA having just seated a, a new grand jury looking into the hush money allegations, the payments to Stormy Daniels. You've got this case in Georgia. You've got the special counsel inquiries from the DOJ, which cover both the election meddling charges and the issues with classified documents. And then this is all in addition to the things that don't necessarily bear on him as a candidate, like the, the defamation case about the rape allegations and the conviction last month for the Trump organization on tax fraud and other things. If you are on Donald Trump's team, which of these makes you the most nervous? I mean, where, where do you think they have the highest probability of actually snaring him? John, I'll, I'll start with you. Please do. 
Uh, there's so many things to pick from. <laughs> I, I well, of course, uh, from a criminal perspective, I think the grand jury in Georgia is a big problem for Trump uh, because apparently one thing that the forewoman said is that the tape of the phone call between Trump and Brad Raffensperger, I believe was the name, the Secretary yes. of State, where he said, mm-hmm. we got to find, just find me 110,000 votes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure whether that would be a crime. That's an interesting, uh, I mean, I think that would be interesting uh, to see whether that amounted to some kind of coercion. I don't, I'm not sure it does, but apparently she said there were a lot of other phone calls that Trump made to people in Georgia that were taped and that they listened to a lot of these. So who knows what else you know, they've got, got. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've got him on. Um, if that's true, that I think is the most uh, serious one um, because or he could be accused of corruption. Uh, now, the, the other ones that are, I think he may well end up pleading out or there's some kind of deal, which, so I don't, I think even if he gets caught, I don't think they're that serious would be the investigations that are going on up in New York City about uh, Trump's uh, sort of pre-presidential life, you know, that accuse him of, for example, uh, inflating the value of his properties uh, in order to get better loan terms or uh, you know, understating at the same time the value of his properties to reduce his taxes. I mean, I think... Those are kind of, to me, I like ticky-tacky kind of things that actually have nothing to do with the presidency. It seems to me in the New York real estate world, this might be a, a much more widespread practice than uh, the DA mm-hmm. up there is uh, taking into account. Uh, and in the end, I don't think he would do any serious jail time for that. He'd probably just plead out to some kind of fine. Unless uh, you know the DA really wants to, you know, try to, you know, try to go all the way, and then I think he's got good, you know, interesting defenses. So I really think it's the, I really do think it's the the investigation of the DA. Now the last thing, the the, the one that um, I think everyone's focused on um, is the January sixth investigation with the special counsel Jack Smith. I think so far I have not seen enough proof to link Trump to anything directly links him to anything criminal. So I don't think that's actually going to come off. Uh, so I wouldn't, as, if I was on his legal team, I would not take that one as seriously as the Georgia prosecution. I'm sorry, investigation. Well, yeah. I mean, let me sort of give my general sort of estimation of this. I think that John is right about the financial stuff. One of the things that's important to understand is he may have engaged in inconsistent systems of valuation for different purposes, uh, but there is nothing more common when you're dealing with complicated commercial and real estate transactions. That property has value of one level for tax purposes and another value with respect to uh, securities purposes and so forth. Uh, so it's going to take a lot more than showing inconsistent valuations to make this work. Uh, the lesson I would take from this is uh, we now have seen Trump's tax returns. And, you know, everything seemed to be just absolutely tempting that, God, they were going to find everything. By the time these things are revealed, what you do is you see this incredible set of interlocking tax returns, and the whole issue just dropped like a stone uh, because it turned out you could not find any obvious systematic deviation from the very occult and arcane rules that govern these kinds of transactions. And so what you do is you start thinking to yourself, why on earth did Mr. Trump 
decide to keep them secret to begin with when he knew that this was exactly the way in which these things were going to play out. So I don't know. Uh, my view is that the, the New York thing won't go anywhere. I have looked, as is everybody else, at what's existing on January 6th, and there's nothing here, I think, that wasn't perfectly apparent at first view. Trump was far away. He was saying, we've got to go over there and tell them to defend our rights, uh, to make that into a criminal charge uh, when there were other people who were actually trying to force people into the building and trying to whip them up closer to the scene, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to, to make that into a serious criminal case, uh, given the fact that the First Amendment privilege to petition the government for redress of grievances is certainly very, very much on the table. I think that it's going to be very difficult to take everything that's said by the January 6th committee at face value. There have already been extensive refutations of it's published in other kinds of circumstances. And frankly, I do not see that as the basis of a criminal charge. I didn't even see it as the basis of a, an impeachable offense. I think uh, what happens is Donald Trump engages in activities which are boorish, silly, insensitive, uh, self-justifying, self-pitying, and all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, that kind of stupidity doesn't get you to the level of a criminal charge. So I think he's going to probably escape that one. So by process of elimination, uh, it looks as though the Georgia thing is going to be the most apparent. Uh, but I would caution this, which is we've yet to see anything that's been raised by way of defense by anybody on the other side, um, including the chaotic conditions that seem to have existed in Atlanta on the evening in which the ballots were suspended and counted and recounted and so forth. I have no opinion on these kinds of things. I like to say all the time, I'm a professor of law, I'm not a professor of facts, uh, but my own instincts are in total hear the other side on this sort of stuff. You have to be a little bit cautious before you say that the things are as apparent as they are. I think in an odd sense, the fact that the people who hate Trump hate him so much is something which in a criminal trial will actually undermine uh, their credibility going forward. I do want to drill down for a second just one aspect of the DOJ investigation where Mike Pence has become the center of attention of late. So Pence has been subpoenaed by the special counsel to appear before the grand jury that's investigating Trump. And, you know, Pence is in an interesting position because he's walking this tightrope where it seems pretty clear that he's getting ready to run for president and challenge Trump. But he's been very careful about how and to what degree he's separating himself from Trump. So the reporting is that Pence is going to try to resist this subpoena on the grounds this is a separation of powers issue, that the vice president in his capacity as president of the Senate is subject to the constitutional protections of the speech and debate clause. So, John, can you explain Pence's interpretation of this and sort of give us a refresher on, on what this means in the Constitution and then give us your diagnosis, what you make of this argument? Sure, this Speech and debate clause is in Article 1, and it says, it's very brief, it says the senators and representatives, for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in, in any, any other place. place. And so one uh, issue here, uh, the upfront textual issue is, is Mike Pence a senator or a representative? within the scope of the text. He is serving as the president of the Senate. He's also the vice president. Uh, so he's one of the, he's a, a unique, unusual individual. In fact, this is what gave many of the strangely, I think, critics of the Constitution pause was how can you have this official who serves in both branches 
is a, you know, they actually had these uh, you know, weirdly conspiratorial fears that the vice president would seize power because of all these different roles. They also point out he, the vice president also has a judicial role in that he presides over uh, impeachment trials in, in, in certain cases. So uh, one question then textually is, does uh, Mike Pence fall within that phrase? Uh, now, the Supreme Court has interpreted to extend, I believe, to the staff. So there are arguments. For example, does the parliamentarian fall within the Supreme Court debate clause? So uh, that's one argument you could say as well. Senators and representatives means you know, the people who work in Congress. And so when Mike Pence um, was making decisions about uh, whether and how to count the electoral votes that were coming in in uh, 2021, does he, um, as head of the Senate, get the benefit of this uh, speech and debate clause? So uh, the second issue, though, is uh, we commonly uh, analogize these kinds of privileges and immunities to the kind that uh, apply to attorneys and their clients. And so uh, one thing is uh, often uh, the privilege, for example, of the attorney-client privilege is waived if you allow someone who's not an attorney or the client to participate. So I assume what the independent counsel, the special counsel wants is mostly to hear about what Pence and Trump said to each other. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of media reports, of course, already about uh, allegedly showing Trump trying to pressure Pence. And then there are going to be people say they tried to coerce Pence into uh, stopping the county electoral votes and somehow sending them, suspending the count so that state legislatures could reconsider their electoral votes. So even if there is a speech and debate clause uh, privilege, I think talking about this with Trump, who's not a member of the legislative branch, would waive the privilege. In, in fact, if anything, their discussions would be part of the executive privilege members of the executive yeah. branch talking to the president about a public issue. Uh, that that actually would fit much better with what Pence is saying. But he has a problem there. One is uh, that the courts here, and this goes back to the Nixon case, has said executive privilege yeah. doesn't protect discussions that have to do with crimes and generally don't stand up before a valid criminal investigation. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one. Um, and then another, I think another interesting is that Joe Biden, usually the Supreme Court has never directly ruled, clearly ruled on this, but in general and practice, sitting presidents decide whether the privilege is to be claimed because it's the president, not the person of the president, but the office of the president that benefits from mm -hmm. the privilege and so decides it. And Joe Biden has waived all executive privilege uh, that has to do with uh, January 6th yeah. and with this criminal investigation. So that's why Pence has to hide behind this speech claim, and debate clause. Yeah, this very strange claim. Yeah, vice a kind of unique vice presidential privilege comes from the speech and debate clause. Look, I think the speech and debate clause only applies to those things that are said 
in Congress, and I think that the president of the Senate probably is going to shoehorn himself in to get to that. Uh, but I don't think that they were trying to get information uh, about what was said in the formal proceedings and all that stuff is on the public record anyhow. I think it's going to be the conversations that took place outside of the Senate, outside of the uh, formal branches of Congress that are going to be the subject to it. I think it's going to be a very hard road to hope. Uh, John did mention something which I think is A, correct, and B, troublesome. What he says is that the plea of executive privilege is in the first instance something that belongs to the sitting president, and it is said that he is entitled to waive that particular president, even to remarks that his predecessor in office made uh, when he was president of the United States. I find that actually extremely very, very troublesome. Um, if you know, in effect, that your privilege is going to be lost the moment that you leave office, it's going to change the way in which you're going to act while you turn out to be in office. And it also turns out that the person who's now going to be in charge of your privilege is one of your sworn political enemies. And that, it seems to me, is a mistake. So my own view about all of this stuff is that you probably want to rethink that body of law and to start with the notion that under these circumstances, the president in office at the time that the speech is made is entitled to the privilege, subject to a very narrow override. If it turns out that there's some genuine condition of necessity of some kind or another, which requires that information to be used in uh, uh, some other kind of office. And I just, at this particular point, uh, don't think that that's true. So I, in fact, would grant uh, Trump this particular privilege. Uh, I don't think that it's what's something that Pence has immediately. Uh, the question I'm going to ask, since I'm not a political guy like John turns out always to be. Oh, is, oh, oh. Wait, till, no, wait till you put on your red and black turtleneck. Yes, and then I'll become as sophisticated <laughs> as you. But, the, but, but I mean, the issue is, is it in Pence's interest to testify or not to testify? Um, I mean, if he gets up there and he starts to give the account that it's accustomed to, he was the man who stood between Trump and the absolute electoral chaos that might have followed. Um, it could only bolster the story that he was an independent man of character and judgment who stood up to the incredible barrage by Donald Trump and prevented the United States from falling into some kind of a major crisis. And I, I think that there's something to be said for him to doing this. Uh, the other issue, of course, with respect to privilege, which John didn't mention, but is always in the background, is there some other source of information that you have about the relevant events uh, that require, that make it inappropriate for you to ask somebody who does have a claim for privilege when everything you need you could find from these alternative sources. I don't think that you're going to win on that claim. I think the argument is going to be that uh, Trump, rather Pence, was uniquely situated in this circumstances, and there's no way that you could get out from underneath of that. So my guess is that he will be forced to testify. And then this, of course, brings back this constant problem that you always have, right? You know, you appoint special prosecutors, and it turns out, I gather this guy Smith is something of a hunter when it comes to being a prosecutor. Uh, I should not have used the word hunter, because I gather there's an investigation of Hunter Biden and so forth, and the prosecutor in that case seems to be a much more mild-mannered type. And so what happens is all these these special prosecutor cases are really extremely difficult because the appointment that the attorney general makes, um, over which he has very little oversight once it is made, can be absolutely critical. And I think on respect to all of these issues, the correct response to Merrick Garland is a vote of no confidence in his ability to uh, assure himself the independence of office to make sure that these things are done correctly, both for friend and for foe. I wouldn't mind just addressing ahead, briefly the political yeah. incentives, because I think that really explains what's going on, which is 
I mean, this is a novel claim. This is not something the Supreme Court has uh, ever really passed on. I mean, they have talked about the vice president. Uh, there was a case about Cheney uh, back in the 2000s, uh, but that didn't I, directly address this kind of privilege and whether I think it mostly analyzed the privilege of the vice president as pertaining to the executive privilege, not to this legislative privilege. But look at from Pence's perspective. I think he did the constitutional right thing on uh, in January 2021 by refusing uh, Trump's pleas and uh, not blocking any of the electoral votes or even suspending the count. Uh, but because of that, I think he's got a problem with the Republican base, and I think he's running for president. And so it seems to me uh, now that he's running for president, he wants to also show that he's no friend of the Biden administration. And he wants to put some distance between him and this special counsel investigation. And he knows, I think, because this is a novel and important claim, that he could litigate this all the way to the Supreme Court. And it may take months. It may take so many months that it might actually go past the primaries in terms of when the Supreme Court can get to this issue. and Because it'll have to go through trial court and then the D.C. Circuit and then ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. And so I think this is just a way, I think, of him kicking the can down the road uh, with enough time so that he doesn't have to, he's not forced to take a public position, which is going to anger the Republican primary voters who uh, are going to you know, make the decision on whether they want Mike Pence to run in 20, to be the candidate in 2024. I mean, if there is a pro-Trump base and a DeSantis base, I think he has no chance whatsoever of gaining the nomination based on the information that's already available. My advice to him would be to sit it out this particular time and then figure out how to reassess his prospects later on. But I think he's caught in an absolute vice. I, I don't believe that no matter what he does, he will ever be able to win a Republican primary, even though he might have some chance in a general election. But recall this, the Democrats themselves, uh, for reasons that I think are somewhat uh, dubious, they also have a visceral dislike of of Trump because of his not of Trump of Pence because of his apparent prudishness and all the rest of that stuff. So I just don't think he could win in a general election, and so it's going to come down to whether or not the collection of plausible candidates, most notably, most notably Ron DeSantis, can knock off Trump. If they can't, and if we have a rerun of Biden uh, versus Trump, it's going to be a genuine national catastrophe. But to that point, I want to get you guys to DeSantis in the remaining time that we have left. Okay. Because, I mean, as you suggest, it seems pretty clear that he is trying to bring himself to the front of the pack on some of the issues that Donald Trump has really owned over the past several years. And as a result of that, DeSantis has got the media in his sights. And, and the mechanism he is using is a piece of legislation that he's supporting in Florida that would change the standards for defamation. The goal here is, it seems to be, to get this thing litigated in the hopes it'll end up upending the status quo that currently exists under New York Times v. Sullivan. So there are a bunch of components of the legislation that probably won't make sense to our listeners until we review what the existing standards are under New York Times v. Sullivan. So, Richard, can you just give us a quick refresher on that, and then I'll give a brief rundown of the legislation. Yeah, this is a very complicated subject. The uh, 
the American Constitution had little or anything to say about defamation before 1964. And the received wisdom on defamation, as it developed at that particular period, was that defamation was, with respect to false matters of fact, generally something which was subject to strict liability, meaning that if you made the mistake, even if you were trying to avoid that particular error and had no malice whatsoever, you could be held responsible for it. And then there were rules for damages which allowed you either to to specify precisely how you'd been injured with a particular causal chain, what third party had done what in response to what you had said that had hurt you, the plaintiff, uh, given what the defendant had said, or there were general damages. Statements like this is so troublesome that we know that they suffered particular harm, even if you can't produce it. Uh, there was this terrible situation which took place in Alabama, in which uh, Sullivan, who was the, I guess, the commissioner of police at the time, um, sued the New York Times for defamation, uh, saying that they had published an advertisement that had essentially described the situation in Alabama falsely, and that he was entitled to general damages. The amount that was awarded him was $500,000. Uh, there were maybe 100 papers of the New York Times edition that had been circulated within the state. And the state court said that standard rules apply. Comes to Justice Brennan, and what he does is he turns the rule upside down on a multiple number of ways. Uh, the point I think that is probably more persuasive to most people is why you would say that a general ad that doesn't even mention Sullivan's name is of and concerning the plaintiff is something that you would be doubtful of. And what happened is Brennan decided to make that into a constitutional issue. More importantly, there was the question of whether or not you could have strict liability for false statements of fact. And what our friend um, Brennan said is, no, 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 uh, we really have to make sure that uh, uh, we are going to be allowed to protect criticisms of public officials, in this case Sullivan. So the rule is one of actual malice, meaning not that you had bad will, but that you had actual knowledge or were in that reckless disregard of the truth. The net effect of that particular standard was to say that false statements, which are absolutely devastating to individuals, would be beyond the scope of redress with respect to the state. And when I wrote about New York Times and Sullivan, I guess it's now close to 40 years ago, I defended, not unsurprisingly, I suppose, the common law view is that it existed prior to that particular case. DeSantis knows that he's faced with a constitutional decision, and they introduce this rather strange statute in which the first thing they do is they denounce the federalization of the entire law of defamation through the First Amendment. It's one thing to denounce it, but if it turns out it has constitutional underpinnings, what you cannot do under these circumstances is to overturn it by a state statute. And so there is in this a kind of an appeal saying, look, we want the United States Supreme Court to reconsider New York Times against Sullivan. And indeed, people like Clarence Thomas have already indicated there's some sense of that. And then there are other provisions in the statute which are absolutely baffling, including one which says uh, that if a statement is named anonymously, it will be presumed to be defamatory, which seems very odd uh, because uh, you usually tell whether a sentence is defamatory or not by reading it and seeing whom it addresses to. Whether it's anonymous or not has never had anything to do with this. And the way in which this goes, if you write something in the Federalist Papers and publish it anonymously, all of a sudden you're now a potential defendant. So I don't think this particular reform is going very far. But I do think what it does is it captures an increasing unhappiness with so much of the Warren Court stuff. Remember, Brennan wrote this decision in 1964 when 
Earl Warren was in charge. And so there is likely to be some effort to try to push back on this, which will take place in multiple fora. And, you know, who is going to benefit from this depends on who is suing whom and for what. Um, generally speaking, I think that the, some return to the earlier standards would be warranted, uh, but you can't do it by the statute. John, so as Richard was suggesting there, I mean, when you look at this legislation, it's sort of squeezing on both ends. It would narrow the category of who's considered a public figure for the defamation <sighs> cases. It would expand out what constitutes malice. It also award attorney fees for the uh, the winning plaintiffs. So representative headline here, some Politico on this development, DeSantis wants to roll back press freedoms. John, what do you make of this proposal on the merits? And uh, how would you how would you rate the chances of the Supreme Court ever seriously reconsidering Sullivan and then this Supreme Court in the near future? I, I agree with Richard's description of the way defamation law works uh, now. He's the expert on all matters tort. Uh, uh, I don't uh, I don't see how a state can actually over, overturn the First Amendment's uh, you know, right, structure for what's uh, considered uh, publishable speech and points of view and so on. And uh, this is, I mean, I agree with what some of the things in the statute itself as a policy, a constitutional policy matter. I, I don't think New York's time, New York Times versus Sullivan was uh, correctly decided. I don't think it was consistent with the First Amendment at the time of the founding. And I don't think it's consistent with the you know space allowed for common law defamation suits. Mm. Uh, so whether the Supreme Court will hear it, as, as Richard said, I mean, there are one or two justices, I think, that uh, you know have signaled they have an interest in re-examining Sullivan. And, and you know, my former uh, justice who I worked for, Justice Thomas, has uh, said as much. I don't detect right now on the court, or I haven't seen the votes line up that suggests that you have a majority on the court uh, that would be interested, or even really four votes. Uh, to grant cert on a case like this, so I, I think Sullivan uh, has, I, I would put differently. I think maybe this is the first step in a longer-running campaign to try to get the court eventually to re-examine this, you know, absence of malice standard and the first, you know, free the constitutionalization of defamation law. But I would compare it to uh, what Justice Thomas did with the Second Amendment, or with um, the non-delegation doctrine. He often writes these uh, concurrences, dissents, years and years before the court ever gets to such mm -hmm. an issue. But he's doing it just to you know, sh shoot up a signal flare to say there's a problem here and maybe that's something they should look at. Now, this is a court that does seem to favor, you know, looking back at the original understanding of the Constitution uh, rather than being governed solely by precedents. And that's something I'm all in favor of. Look, I, I will put it the following way. Uh, there was a huge battle over defamation law in the 1980s and 1990s, in which it turned out that many people who suffered real and genuine grievances lost their major jobs because of false statements from the press, and you could show the causal connection, come into court. And the way in which all these cases went is the plaintiffs would give this history in painful detail, and the defendants would give some general 
plea about the importance of the freedom of the press to inform everybody about what's going on, even as the confidence that people have in the press goes down in part because they're not responsible for the defamatory statement. But at this particular point, I don't think there's any sort of active constituency out there uh, is intent upon overturning New York Times against Sullivan for the kinds of reasons that I put forward back in 1986 when I last wrote about this subject matter. I'll compare this to the administrative state questions, the non-delegation question, the Chevron doctrine, and so forth. These things are white-hot issues. So if you're trying to figure out which particular doctrine is going to generate the greatest amount of sustained controversy going forward, it's going to be all the stuff that derives from the West Virginia versus the EPA case, turning the scope of the federal government to take, as put Justice Scalia's famous phrase, putting elephants in mouse holes, taking statutes that look anonymous on, or not innocuous on this state, and making them into charters of great freedom. That's an area in which everybody is fully and 100% engaged. Same thing is true with the non-delegation doctrine and so forth. So maybe in 10 or 15 years, somebody will want to take this thing up in a big way. Uh, but I think, in effect, that the current agenda is going to be on all the hot button issues uh, that have been basically coming to the fore in the last four or five years since the conservatives have taken over the majority on the Supreme Court with the six to three majority. All right, gentlemen, that's all the time we have for this installment. John has to go raid a Caribbean trading port. My thanks to you both, as always, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. Well, we didn't cover everything, but we covered enough. Oh, John, you're still, I wanted you to take off that. Yeah, I really don't like this shirt. It's so awesome.